Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, history friends. Zach Twelma here with a shorter-than-usual episode. Wow, really, the train just went by. The train just went by. Just in case you're wondering, I need some kind of recording studio or something because every now and then trains go by and it's very unfortunate because I have to stop. I have to ruin my mojo and stop to let the train pass. Which brings me, conveniently, to a very special point. If you would like to support this podcast on Patreon, then perhaps someday we can afford a studio, an office, some soundproofing technology, all this kind of stuff, so that we don't have to stop every time a train goes by. Now, you might think that I set this whole thing up just so that I could talk about Patreon. You might think I even paid that train driver to drive by just so it would be an opportune moment to talk about Patreon. But surely you know by now I don't need an excuse to talk about it, because it is, by far, the best way to support this podcast, and I'm a real big fan of it, because it lets me deliver more stuff to you, and in return, you pay me a certain amount every month, ranging from $1 to 6 
and you'll get to take part in the delegation game, get an hour of extra content, get the episodes ad-free with their scripts attached. You know the drill by now. You might know the drill, but what you might not know is that if you go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, you'll be helping to make history thrive, and you'll be making me very, very happy indeed. So many people have signed up within the last few days for some reason, maybe there's something in the water or something, but it's super appreciated, and I really can't wait to hear what you think about the extra content we've got going there, which at the moment is 1956, more specifically, part two of it, The Suez Crisis. So go and check that out by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Thanks again, guys. And yeah, thanks to that train that happened to go by at that specific time and remind me about how wonderful it is to be supported by you lovely history friends. Enjoy this episode. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 54. Today is the 11th of April 2019, and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. Edward House was notably silent on the racial equality question. Interestingly, this was not because he was unaware of it, but because he had managed, through some deft political handling, to pass the book onto the British It is significant that House managed to do this, because it enabled him to present himself as a sympathetic figure to Japanese interests, whereas the British were the obstructionist power preventing Japan realising its destiny as an equal power. For some time, House was able to make great political capital out of this impression, and the story of how he did so makes for interesting reading and listening. While House was silent about the question of race when that question was really heating up, that is, in the second week of April 1919, he was regularly referring to it in the first two weeks of February, just before Wilson returned to the United States to present the first draft of the League of Nations to the United States. On the 4th of February, House recorded a visit from the two Japanese delegates, Baron Makino Nabuaki and his peer, Viscount Chinda, saying... Baron Makino and Viscount Chinda came for advice concerning what Japan had best do regarding the race question. There is a demand in Japan that the peace conference, through the League of Nations, should express some broad principle of racial equality. Chinda and Makino do not desire to bring it up themselves if they can avoid doing so. I advise them to prepare two resolutions, one which they desired, and another which they would be willing to accept in lieu of the one they prefer. I promised I would then see what could be done. I was interested to hear Chinda and Makino say, On July 8th of Magnolia, you expressed to Viscount Ishii sentiments which please the Japanese government. Therefore, we look upon you as a friend, Mr. House, and we have come for your advice. I took occasion to tell them how much I deprecated race, religious, or other kinds of prejudice. I insisted, however, that it was not confined to any one country or against any particular class of people. I found prejudice existing among the Western peoples against one another, as well as against Eastern people. I cited the contempt which so many Anglo-Saxons have for the Latins 
and vice versa. I thought that this was one of the serious causes of international trouble and should in some way be met. House tended to present himself as an enlightened statesman, always in control of his views and possessing views which were themselves rather moderate. When it came to race, though, the mask often slipped throughout February 1919 as House became palpably frustrated with the Japanese digging into the race issue. This wasn't due to House's innate racist perspective per se, instead it was due more to House's own sensibilities of politics back in the United States. To Wilson as well, the race issue is potentially dangerous because it would upset voters along the West Coast who would be asked to vote on the League of Nations Covenant. If the race clause was included within that covenant, they would be unlikely to approve of it. The last thing Wilson needed was another hiccup in the league saga, so he planned to carefully dodge the race issue altogether. House, as with the President's other plans, was tasked with making this dodging exercise actually possible, as Wilson's sort of best friend recorded on the 6th of February in reference to a proposal on race which the Japanese had brought to him two days after their previous meeting, that... The proposal which Count Chinda brought today will not be accepted either by our people or the British colonies. The Japs are making the adoption of a clause regarding immigration essential to their adhesion to the League of Nations. I have a feeling that it can be worked out by a satisfactory compromise which will in no way weaken the American or British Dominion's position and yet will satisfy the self-respect of the Japanese. A week later, House recorded that the Japanese leader had gone to the British but not emerged with any satisfactory solution. Viscount Chinda called again to say he could not get anything definite from the British and that he intended to present a resolution himself which would be more drastic than the one the President and I agreed to accept. His idea is that while it will not be accepted, it will be an explanation to his people in Japan. He thanked me warmly for the interest I had taken and said his government and people would always remember my consideration and sympathy. But House was very far from a friend to the Japanese. The race issue was a hill he did not plan to die or even fight on. Instead, he was rather pleased to note a week later that the question had consumed the British. On the 13th of February 1919, on a day more famous for the passing of the League of Nations Covenant, House refers to an interesting side development which demonstrated his cynicism surrounding the whole racial question. Explaining the setup of the Covenant, House noted that a religious equality article was initially proposed, which the Japanese used to justify their proposal for racial equality to go along with it. House then signalled that he promised to withdraw the religious equality proposal, and the Japanese reciprocated by temporarily withdrawing the racial equality clause. This meant that in the earliest Covenant of the League, there would be no mention of racial equality. Thus, the League would be much easier for Wilson to sell back home. In his expressions used here, House ranged from first diplomatic and subtle, to then relieved and triumphant. Why? Because the hot potato of race had been passed to the British, and now they would have to untangle it, not the United States President. House wrote in the evening of the 13th of February, I would not agree to eliminate the religious clause without first giving the President a chance to express himself but I tentatively promised that it should be withdrawn, in which event Baron Mackino promised to withdraw, for the moment, the race amendment which neither the British nor I could take in the form in which he finally presented. Mackino and I agreed upon a form the other day which the President accepted, 
and which was as mild and inoffensive as possible, but even that the British refused. The result is that the Japanese have expressed to me their profound gratitude and have assured me that their government would be equally appreciative. It has taken considerable finesse to lift the load from our shoulders and place it upon the British, but happily it has been done. This ought to make for better relations between Japan and the United States. Happily, it has been done. House was evidently aware that the race issue was an important point for the Japanese, and he was keen to avoid letting it wreck relations at a critical time. How could he avoid this eventuality? Well, by relying on the British sensibility towards race to compel the British leaders to oppose the racial equality proposal, even those surprisingly mild iterations of the proposal which House said he negotiated with the Japanese over. This passed the book onto the British, as House noted with some glee. But the question is why? In other words, why were the British more eager to quash the racial equality proposal than the United States? And why was House able to rely on the British to always be louder in their opposition to any racial equality proposal than the Americans would ever be? The answer to that question is as straightforward as it is familiar to us. The Dominions were making noise again. Even today, the issue of Asian immigration to Australia and New Zealand can be touchy subjects, but in 1919 the issue was white-hot, and unlike today, a sense of reason and maturity did not prevail. No government could live for a day in Australia if it tampered with a white Australia, noted one of Australian Prime Minister Billy Hughes's subordinates. This made the issue as clear as day for the Australians and Billy Hughes's Pacific peer, the Irish-born New Zealand Premier William Massey, was with him on this question. In fact, the historian Naoko Shimatsu commented on precisely how ingrained this policy of outright racial discrimination was ingrained in Hughes's Labour Party, writing, The official birth of the white Australia policy in 1901 was the result of the high degree of anti-Asian sentiment which existed in the country in the latter part of the 19th century. In the traditional Labour strongholds of Queensland and New South Wales, the idea of Asian exclusion was deeply rooted. Apparently, Hughes's identification with the policy went back to January 1986, when his policy platform was adopted by the Australian Federation of Labour as its official platform. It included, as one of the Seven Commandments, the future exclusion from residence and citizenship within the federal territory of undesirable alien races. From then on, the official platform of the Federal Labour Party had two parts. First, the need to maintain the racial purity of Australians, and second, collective ownership of monopolies. This twofold platform was readopted in 1915 and 1927. Therefore, it is not an exaggeration to say that Hughes was, to a large extent, the embodiment of the values of the Labour Party. The White Australia policy became an extremely important political weapon for the party, partly because of its ability to conjure up mass emotion. Billy Hughes, it seemed, was the perfect man to lead a campaign against any notion of accepting racial equality. This placed the British in a very awkward spot indeed. For a time, Robert Cecil had been more than willing to go along with the racial equality clause, but from an early stage, as House's diary makes clear, the British became entangled with the race issue over their dominions. What was more important, Dominion solidarity within the Empire or the maintenance of the alliance with Japan? The public British line was that there was no need to choose, but in private, it was the former. 
Billy Hughes certainly made no secret of how he felt in public. With a key plank of his party, based upon the racial prejudice issue, he was seen to make legions of statements which we would now view as totally abhorrent, but which were nothing unusual at the time. On one occasion, when attempting to capture why immigration from Asia was so damaging for his conception of white Australia, Billy Hughes exclaimed, The idea of a white Australia, and one peopled in the main by men and women of British stock, reflects the traditions and achievements of our race. Racial purity pays in the long run. In Australia, a certain percentage of the people of some European countries can be absorbed into our community, but we cannot assimilate these coloured peoples. Their ways are not ours. The racial and economic barriers between us and them are insuperable. We cannot marry their women, nor they ours, without producing a race of half-castes, at which both races would split contempt. It is certainly worth considering the possibility, as the historian Naoko Shimatsu does, that Hughes came to view Japan not only as a racial threat, but, following the Russo-Japanese War and the Japanese victory, as a military threat as well. Should the Royal Navy decline, Australia would be alone, a bastion of European civilization in a sea of oriental decadence and inferiority. The paradox speaks for itself, of course. An inferior nation cannot pose a threat to your own. Instead, Hughes had read the dispatches and concluded for himself that Japan was a power on the up-and-up, and that Australia's defence depended upon its strong links to London, and London's preservation of its military arms in the region. Coupled with this was a desire to refrain from ever letting the enemy in the back door. Hughes was convinced to the end of his life that Australia was the most vulnerable part of the empire, and he urged cooperation even with the United States if it would safeguard Australian security and, in this racial issue, purity. As with other hot-button issues in Paris, when an external pressure became common knowledge, it also became a weapon. Figures like House would now be able to grandstand on the race issue and make all sorts of well-meaning gestures and expressions safe in the knowledge that when it came to the crunch, the British would block the racial question for them and they would not incur the penalties of opinion with the Japanese. Ironically, in his 1938 book, The Truth About the Peace Treaties, Lloyd George avoids the sticky hypocrisy of not having to tell the truth about the peace treaties after all by simply avoiding the entire issue of Japan's racial equality proposal. Had Lloyd George talked about it, he probably would have alluded to the fact that it was Cecil, rather than he, who shot the Japanese proposal down in the end. During the League of Nations Commission meeting, the Japanese claimed on the 10th of April that they would bring up the question of racial equality for the next day. We imagine that in that meeting, House would have eyed up Cecil to gauge his reaction, and we also imagine that the British representative, who had such high hopes for the future of the League, would have shifted uncomfortably in his seat as he imagined having to lead the way in opposition to the proposal. In fact, the experience for Robert Cecil was far worse than that. The next day, on the 11th of April, the Japanese proposal for racial equality, which was to be inserted into the preamble of the Covenant of the League, enjoyed the support of the Greek Premier, the Italian Premier, the Chinese representative, the two French delegates, and the Czech Prime Minister. The matter had not been put to the President of the Commission, Woodrow Wilson, yet, because House had sensed, correctly, that Cecil would save the American position by advocating opposition himself. Cecil walked right into the political net with a sense of resigned glumness. He knew he had no choice. As he noted his objection to the racial equality proposal, with as brief a speech as he could manage, discussion rose the volume in the room, 
and House slipped his president a note. The trouble is that if this commission should pass it, it would surely raise the race issue throughout the world, the note said. Wilson did not need to be told twice. He was far from the most sympathetic man to appeal to in terms of notions of racial equality, and his political senses, like those of House, informed him that voters on the West Coast would never accept a measure which permitted equal treatment of Asian immigrants. On the basis of Cecil's pained opposition, Wilson appealed to the Japanese delegates. Essentially saying, we're all friends here, without actually saying it, Wilson attempted to bury the racial equality idea under a mountain of goodwill, and also to drown it in word soup. There was no need to make such a fuss about racial equality, Wilson said, because this would only stir up trouble across the world. Was it not better to move forward with declarations of friendship? Surely everyone in the room considered the other man his equal? Why did there have to be a statement in writing proclaiming such an idea? Wilson spoke in the friendliest of prose, but the Japanese proceeded, and the amendment was actually successfully approved by the majority. In the face of this, Wilson employed some of his craftiness as a university president in his past life, an accomplished manipulator of the situation to boot when he declared that such a proposal couldn't go ahead when it faced the strong objections of the given powers in the room. Interestingly though, the Japanese did not attempt to challenge this affront and the racial equality proposal did not become part of the covenant. Cecil breathed a sigh of relief at this. House and Wilson no doubt felt it had been a job well done, and Hughes congratulated himself that his racist worldview had been unchallenged. The Japanese proposal had effectively been defeated, and a great plank of their policy had been broken. How would the Japanese delegates respond? How would the Japanese press respond at home? In both cases, the consequences were dire. The defeat gave ammunition to the opposition within the Japanese Premier's own party, and it added fuel to the fire of resentment against the League of Nations, which was already being criticised as an imperialist scheme for preserving dominion over the subjected continents. In fact, the Japanese did actually absorb the defeat quite well. They focused their attentions swiftly to their next mission, that of acquiring the Allied blessing for the Chinese chestnuts which they had their eyes on. The Japanese played this card far more skillfully, and they had far more leverage. After suffering a public defeat on the race issue, the sense among the big three was that another defeat for the Japanese would send their delegation packing. This sense was heightened when the Japanese essentially told Wilson that this would be the case in late April. The threat was particularly pronounced because, by that point, the Italians had already left the building. If the Japanese decided to follow the Italians out the door, then could the big three really claim to speak for the world? Indeed, failure in the racial equality proposal merely meant that the Allies felt compelled to ensure that the Japanese succeed in their other, less reasonable venture, that of seizing land from the Chinese. Of course, the knock-on effects from that decision were clear to see as well. By appeasing the Japanese, the Chinese were absolutely disgusted. The utter destruction of Chinese plans and the bitter pills which the Chinese delegates were forced to swallow at the same time only contributed to the tensions between the two Asian parties. Late April was indeed a tumultuous time. The Italians, the news bulletin went, were on the verge of exiting Paris altogether. And yet, went the rejoinder to that bulletin, not everyone would be all that upset to see them go. The journey from Big Five to Big Three was underway. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 